0: Hey everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. My name is Jeff and today Aaron and Greg and I are going to be talking about mountain bike drivetrains. In this discussion, we're going to start off talking about the pros and cons of one by versus two by and three by drivetrains because that's still a hot topic among a lot of our readers. Um, we're also going to talk about some of the differences between the different group levels, so SLX versus XT and XTR, and on the SRAM side, how the X rating system works for them as well. And then we're also going to talk about some alternative drivetrains that are out there. So some of the geared drivetrains that you might have heard about. Uh, we'll talk about oval chainrings and also DI2. So let's jump right into it and start talking about drivetrain configurations. Greg and Aaron, how do you guys have your drivetrains set up?
1: I'm a one-by for life. I've got it tatted on my chest. (laughs) (laughs) That's how about that one-by life I am. No, I I prefer one-by on my personal bikes, at least on my mountain bikes. Uh, I know that SRAM has done some one-by drivetrains for like gravel and road, but with the hills we have around here on my gravel and road bike, I'd still prefer the the two-by. But I've been running a one-by setup for probably seven years or more now, back in the days of one-by-nine when the biggest cassette you could get was like a 32 or maybe a 34. So it's been a minute. So I'm
2: personally running, uh, still running two-by-ten on most of my bikes. I've got A number of bikes with different things. But for me, the big kicker is gear range. Uh, I need a low enough granny gear to allow my wussy legs to pedal up the mountain. And a 1x11 with a 42-tooth big cog isn't a low enough granny gear for me. So right now I'm still running 2x10 on most of my stuff. But, you know, with a 46-tooth cog on Shimano's 1x11, that's getting pretty close. And then, you know, I'm, we're going to talk more about Eagle later, but with the 12 speed with a 52 bailout gear, that's plenty of range. So for me, it's all about getting the range I need to get my butt up the mountain.
0: Yeah. I'm also one by on all of my bikes uh, like Aaron and like Aaron too. Yeah. I've been doing it for a long time. I, I always find it funny that people think that one by You know, people who haven't tried it anyway think that it's like a marketing thing or it's, you know, hype or a gimmick or whatever. But it's not. I mean, this is something that Aaron and I at least too have been doing since before there was such a thing as one by eleven or one by twelve now. So it it is possible and there are definite advantages to doing it. There's also disadvantages. So don't feel like, you know, you have to choose one by or two by and you know, one's
1: a right choice and one's a wrong choice. Did you have like a Particular moment where you're like, all right, I'm going one by, or because I know I did.
0: <laughs> no I mean, I know a lot of people who single speeded, mm-hmm. ride single speed, and so that always interested me. And I and I thought, well, shoot, you know, if they can ride most trails with one, gear, one gear, yeah, <laughs> then I should be okay with nine gears. So, right. um, and then yeah, I demoed a bike that was set up that way. The bike that ended up buying the Redline D660, they actually shipped it that way seven eight years ago. And so yeah, that's when I realized that I wanted to do it. How about you?
1: Well, you know, I do a lot of racing and our soil here in the southeast can be really gritty. So if you race in bad weather, if it's raining and muddy, the soil's really gritty and it just wreaks havoc on your drivetrain and can cause a lot of issues with chain suck. So it was after a particularly horrible Snake Creek Gap race up in Dalton, Georgia several years ago now that uh yeah, I just, I had such horrible chain suck. I I was running a triple at the time. This is way back in the day. Remember triples? I couldn't use the, I couldn't use my middle ring or my big ring because the, the, the chain just kept sucking up and getting caught in the chainstay. So I had to ride in the granny ring for like over half the race and just be super ginger on the pedals. So, so I wouldn't get chain suck. And after that race, I was like, I'm done. I'm, took the rings off. I bought one of those little top guides because there were no narrow wide chain rings. So you needed something to you know, help keep the, the chain from rattling off. So I got a little E13 XC guide and yeah, never looked back.
0: Right on. Yeah. So Greg, do you have sort of a preferred manufacturer for your
2: drivetrain or are you running mixed stuff or what's your deal? You know, that's a great question. I'm running mostly Shimano stuff right now, um, partially because that's what came on my bikes, but also because it it just plain works. So, you know, I've got a Shimano mixed drivetrain on my main bike with XT, XTR, SLX um, all across the board, sort of replace things as they go along. Um, But I used to not be a shimano guy I used to be like a shram all the way but i've gotten sort of addicted to my uh my shimano stuff and uh being able to drop more gears at one point in time than uh just pushing and um all that to say i'm not one of these fanboys that's gonna say like oh you need this brand but i'm running mostly shimano right now so that's where i'm at what about you aaron
1: uh i run a variety as well like greg i used to be kind of a a SRAM only guy, uh, for a long time, but I mean, they both make great drivetrains. So, but my hardtail is a, it's a one by 10 drivetrain and it has a mix of like, I think it's an SLX rear derailleur and a a Z shifter on it. And then my full suspension is a one by 11 and that has a SRAM drivetrain on it. So I got a little bit of both in there.
0: So Aaron, since you run primarily one by drivetrains, uh, gear ratio and gearing is really important. So what kind of gears are you running on your drivetrains?
1: The hardtail, I'm just running a straight eleven thirty-six Shimano XT cassette. Um so that's just your standard uh 10 speed cassette. You know there are several aftermarket options where you can get a a larger cog to place behind the cassette, but I'm not currently using that. Typically on that bike, I have a, a 32 tooth chain ring. Uh, it's pretty kind of standard fare. It's a 29er. So with a, you know, the easiest gear being a 32, 36, that, right, that, uh, and it's a hard tail. So I can still get up most stuff here in Georgia. My full suspension is a little different story because it's a bigger, heavier bike. Uh, so I do a lot more swapping of the chain rings on that bike. You know, I have a, up to a 42 tooth cog in the rear but the front i'll change anywhere from a, a 30 to a 34 kind of depending on where i'm riding if i'm going to go somewhere no, i'll be doing a ton of climbing i'll take the time to swap out the 32 chain ring on the front so it's a little bit easier and then if i was going to go race or something like that i'll put a 34 on so i have more top end
0: yeah, for me personally, I've, um I guess, again, I stuck with sort of the single speed mantra and have tried to just get stronger by riding my one by drivetrain. And as a result, I've gone from a 32 tooth chain ring to a 34 uh just to kind of push myself. And um so that's what I run on all of my bikes, again, to give it more of the top end um that is missing. And I'm still able to get up, you know, everything that I need to. Uh, with a standard cassette. And I'll mention too that my one by drivetrains, none of them are 11 speed. I've got a nine speed and a 10 speed. So again, it's, you don't have to buy into the latest and greatest marketing hype or anything. If that's what you're worried about, you can go one by nine, one by 10, you can go one by eight if you want to. So there's a lot of options out there. Here's a question for you, Jeff. So are you running a
2: narrow wide chain ring though, even though you're nine or 10 speed?
0: Yes, I am, and that's allowed me to at least get rid of the um, chain retention device that I had on there, um, and yeah, I rarely drop chains, though it does still happen occasionally, um, but not enough to bother me. So yeah, there are, there are
2: narrow, wide chain rings that you can use with those drivetrains as well. The one thing I would throw in there, which I don't think is there in our notes, um, but if you are going... I don't know. I think any drivetrain you're going with, but you know, you're talking about eight, nine, ten. The big thing I would say is if you can get a derailleur with a clutch on it. You know, whatever the clutch specific name is from whatever manufacturer. I mean, that's going to do a world of good for your chain retention. So, you know, while I think yeah, you can go down maybe to nine speed and older stuff. You know, if you can get a clutch wherever you're at, that's a good choice.
0: Yeah, I think clutches are limited to just 10 speed ten speed and up, and up yeah. yeah from the the manu- major manufacturers. So yeah, one of mine's got clutch and one doesn't.
1: Well, the older the SRAM 9 speed stuff, they especially the shorter cages, they were just known for having like stronger spring tension in them. So that's you know, like the first bike I had when I was running one by 9 I rode with a SRAM X9 rear derailleur and it was a short cage derailleur and uh it yeah, it did a great job of of holding that the chain on because it it does have a stiffer spring than the you know the comparable Shimano nine speed.
0: Ah, that's a good point. I have that same derailleur, so maybe same. that's why I don't have problems.
1: Yep, awesome.
0: Okay, so we've kind of talked about one by drivetrains here for a couple minutes, but let's get down and get explicit about the pros and cons to a one by drivetrain because that's something that not everybody's running yet and. For those who aren't, they might be considering it. So, Aaron, what are some of the pros to a one-by drivetrain?
1: One of the main ones is lighter weight. So you're taking a lot of stuff off your bike. So you're going from, let's say you're going from a two-by to a one-by. You know, you're removing a chain ring. uh, You're removing your front derailleur. You're removing your front shifter, the cable, the housing. You're going to shorten your chain a little bit. You're talking about up to a pound, basically, of weight savings, which is, you know, that's pretty significant. And it's one of the cheapest ways to save that much weight on your bike. I mean, if you try to drop a pound off your wheels, then you're going to be spending probably a couple thousand dollars on a new wheel set. So yeah, it's lighter weight. It's more reliable just because there's less shit to break. You know, you have less pieces on there, so it's less stuff to go wrong out on the trail. It pretty much eliminates drop chains, especially if you're running some sort of additional guide. You know, there's tons of little top guides out there on the market now that just sit over the top of your chain ring just for that added little bit of security. I mean, it does add a little bit of weight, but you're talking, you know, what, 50 to 80 grams maybe. So, yeah. So that's, I mean, you can still drop a chain, but it's way, way, way less common on a one by than, uh, than a two by drivetrain. And I think one thing that kind of gets overlooked is, um, it's, kind of assume that one by is only good for strong and uh, seasoned riders, but I think it's simple and it's really easy to understand for new riders too. You know, you don't have, I mean, shifting is a, is a skill. Like anything else on the bike, it's something you have to learn. And when you add in a front derailleur and multiple chain rings, like, you know, you're, you're just adding more confusion to the mix. So it's really easy for, new riders to understand like, okay, this one button makes it easier. This one button makes it harder. Boom. Like that's all you need to know. And like you mentioned, Jeff, to a certain degree, it'll make you a stronger rider. So, you know, having a limited gear range means, you know, maybe you're going to be pushing it on the climbs a little bit harder than you would if you had a, had a two by drivetrain and, uh, that's going to improve your overall fitness.
0: Excellent. Greg, what are some of the disadvantages of a one by drivetrain?
2: well it's pretty hard to argue with uh that logic right there but there are a couple of uh, disadvantages one is uh if you aren't a super strong rider already you know it can be tough to push that gearing range around if it's a steeper gearing range than you're used to running or if you're i don't know if you're like me and you're just happy with your mediocrity Maybe you don't want to push that really tall low end gear around. But for some other riders, they do have the opposite issue. They might have enough strength to push the, you know, a really difficult granny gear around, but they might not have enough top end gear range for going really fast um, and keeping on the pedals at high speeds. Sometimes I have a hard time believing that, but I hear that from riders. So a lot of these gearing issues, you know, we're we we're talking about range mostly applies to like say one by 10 one by 11 with a 42 tooth cog but now we've got eagle one by 12 and in my experience that's gonna solve most of your gearing range issues especially compared to a two by 10 drivetrain it basically has the same gearing range and you can set up your front chain ring to either give you more a better bailout granny gear which is what i need to pedal my butt up these mountains around here or if you're fast and strong you can run a bigger chain ring up front and get the top end gear that you want so honestly i say this uh this downside of gearing range it doesn't apply to all one by drivetrains just not the super nice new expensive ones i mean eagle's still expensive though even in the, the x01 it's not cheap but it's going to come down it's just a matter of time until it comes down the only other big drawback is that backwards compatibility can be an issue, depending on what bike you're running. But as we go forward, it's going to be less and less of an issue. All I'd say there's not a whole lot of downside. Price used to be one, but uh, but they, they've solved that, you know, in the past couple of years, especially with NX coming out. It's freaking dirt cheap now.
1: Yeah, I would. Uh, I would add a, maybe a couple more cons to your list. I've ridden a couple two-by drivetrain bikes recently and they actually, they shift great. I mean, if you haven't ridden a front derailleur in a while, like they massively improved. It's a lot faster. It's a lot more accurate. Um, you know, especially when you're, if you're comparing it to a three-by drivetrain, it's just a lot easier to shift. So, and you know, I, I've, there's been some long days where I've definitely used the granny gear on a test bike with a, with a two-by. But one of the biggest cons to a two-by system is there's no good place for your dropper remote. And I haven't seen a good solution for that yet. You know, if you have a shifter on the left side, then your dropper remote has to come up above your bars, which is just a horrible ergonomic position. So, I haven't really seen a, a good solution for that yet. And, I mean, for me, it's that's a pretty big deal, you know, because you don't want to be, you know, if you're riding some strange trail that you've never been on before at speed, you don't want to be fumbling around guessing where your dropper remote is, um, at least for me. I mean, once you get used to riding a dropper post, it's kind of hard to go back. So that was a big one for me. And then another one that I, I another con that I hear, and, again, it's kind of like, you know, People saying they don't have enough top end range. So I don't know if it's really affects that many people is cadence that people don't like the jumps and cadence, because if you, you know, if you think about it, when you have a one by drive train, you're having, especially as you get up in bigger gears, you're getting bigger and bigger jumps in between the teeth, which can, you know, kind of upset your natural cadence. So maybe, maybe you feel like, you know, you need to be in a gear ratio. That's like in between these jumps that a one by doesn't provide. But again, it's like, that's probably a, a very particular picky set of mountain bikers. Yeah. Definitely. Racers. Right. That's what I was going to say. It definitely <laughs>
0: seems like more of a road biker issue than mountain biker. Where, yeah. Where cadence is important.
1: I mean, I could, and I could really see, I mean, if you're racing, if you're doing a lot of, uh, endurance races, if you're doing like hundred mile races, I can see the advantage to still having a, a two by drivetrain for the for that top end reason, because you know with, in those kind of races you do have you have a lot of gravel road. You may have paved sections in between the single track, and you want to be covering that ground as fast as possible. So I think it it makes sense for a certain racers, but I mean racers are going to buy the newest greatest anyway and. Like Greg said, they're probably just going to get Eagle and buy a bigger chain ring. So (laughs) Eagle does really kind of takes that excuse off the board.
0: Indeed. In looking at the drivetrain groups from companies like SRAM and Shimano, there are a lot of choices out there. You can get SLX or XT or XTR on the Shimano side, and then SRAM has seemingly an endless number of group levels available. So what are the differences between those groups? What's one of the first things that you guys
1: notice about those groups? Probably the first one's going to be price. So as as you mentioned there's a huge range of component groups available from you know from Shimano and SRAM. There's also other uh smaller manufacturers out there. Microshift is one. Uh you don't really see their stuff on many mountain bikes, but uh they're actually working on a an electronic drivetrain. So mm. we'll talk a little bit about that later. Mm. But then you have uh, Box Components has just recently gotten into the drivetrain gain as well, which is pretty interesting because, you know, it's uh, no one's really been trying to test Shimano and, and SRAM. And our own Chris Daniels actually reviewed it. So you can go look up the Box Components drivetrain review on the site if you want to see what he thought about it. Basically, though, you got a huge range of prices. You know, if we're looking at SRAM's groups, you know, if we're looking at 11 speed stuff, their NX group, which is they just launched last year, is uh, three hundred and ten bucks for a complete group and that wow. includes cranks so that's cranks, the a trailer a shifter a chain, you know not brakes or anything but that's pretty that's i think most of us would consider that very affordable but then you know you it goes all the way up to over fourteen hundred dollars for the new eagle 12 speed group so that's it's a a very broad range and Shimano. Has approximately the same range. You know, they they do have a Dior, just a straight Dior mountain group, and that starts around 300 bucks for a group. And but then when you're looking at the Tippy Top XTR DI2 electronic drivetrain, you're talking over two grand once you get all the the wires and the display unit and the battery and all that all that stuff that goes along with it. So huge range of prices. You can spend almost as little as you want, up to you know as much as you want. One to. thing to
2: think about is that, and we've touched on this a bit, but you can always mix and match components to save money, especially if you're looking at an aftermarket replacement, you know, lots of times your bike will come with whatever your bike comes with, but then down the road, as you replace stuff, that's when you start making decisions. So you, you don't always have to be tied to just like this one group range and buy everything across the group range. So um, that's, an uh, important thing to consider. For instance, while SRAM's high-end cassettes are really nice, I mean, they're super light, they're gorgeous, they shift really well, they are stupid expensive. So, you know, you have to sort of weigh those pros and cons as you go about your upgrades and replacements, but I think that's one of the beauties of having choices, though. So we've got lots of choices, and for the most part, you can mix and match things across you know price ranges Within the same drivetrain style, so if you're running one by eleven, you could you could run an X, NX drive or an NX cassette if you want to It's just going to be really heavy, and maybe not shift as well.
1: Yeah, you definitely you will lose a little bit in the performance, but yeah, I'm right there with you, Greg. I mean, that you know when I went to replace my SRAM cassette, I got a little bit of sticker shock from it. There, I mean, even the GX cassette, which is there kind of mid-tier level cassette retails for 130 bucks you can find it for like 115 online but an xt cassette it retails for 96 bucks and you can find it for around 60 online so it's almost almost half the price essentially so yeah you the, feel free to mix and match they'll they'll tell you not to but in a lot of instances it doesn't make too big of a difference
2: yeah, personally I recently had to do, you know, just pretty much an entire overhaul on my drivetrain, just wear and tear. This stuff wears out over time. And uh I ended up going with mostly SLX and X a few XT parts in there. And you know, while sometimes you can feel the, the difference in performance, you have to ask yourself, like, is it enough of a difference for me to care or for me to pay for the upgrade? Um one part I have a hard time spending a ton of money on is uh, a, the derailleur because I know the odds are pretty good that I will tear it off at some point. And that was the last time I had to replace my derailleur is because I kicked up a boulder and uh, and blew my previous one off my bike. So, you know, you've you just got to consider those things. But, you know, and a lot of these choices, as we talk about cost, they depend on sort of what your goals are as a mountain biker. So if you're a recreational mountain biker and you want to get out in the mountains, that's one thing you know, if you're planning to set a new record on the tour divide, you know, you've got a different goal set for sure.
0: Yeah. And it's, that's good to mention that drivetrains aren't designed to last forever. So keep that in mind when you're pricing stuff out and know that even if you take care of it and you don't do anything wrong, it's still going to wear out over time. So looking at these different groups from the low end to the high end, how does weight compare across the different lineups?
1: Well, obviously as you go up in in price, you're gonna decrease in weight. So if you if you compare like the lowest tier group to the highest tier group, there's gonna be a substantial difference in weight. So if you compared NX to Eagle XX1 on the SRAM side, there's gonna be a huge difference in weight. The same thing on Shimano. If you compared a Dior group to an XTR group, there's gonna be a huge difference in weight. But once you start getting kind of like to the mid-tier and up, the weight differences are pretty minimal. I mean, even on the, you know, the Eagle, the 12-speed, they have a X01 and an XX1 group. And, I mean, there's like 60 grams of difference between the two groups or something like that. So it's really small. Once you kind of get to like you know, the mid-tier and above, there's not a huge jump in or a huge decrease in weight as you go up in the groups.
2: You know, I think we might get to durability in a second, but it's hard to talk about cost, weight, and durability without talking about them all at the same time because that's sort of the classic, um, trifecta, right? It's like cost, weight, durability, pick two. Um, and you know, sometimes as you go to the higher end and you drop weight, you actually do lose durability over some of the mid to lower end components to an extent. I feel like Shram and Shimano have both gotten better at bringing more durability to their top tier stuff. But back in the day, it used to be that some of the XX derailleurs and some of the XTR derailleurs were pretty dang fragile because they went with extremely lightweight stuff and you would get better durability out of say an XT that might be a little bit heavier. So, you know, as you consider dropping weight, you do have to consider the changes in durability, but I think, I don't know if you'd agree, Aaron, but I would think, I think that the durability has gotten better. On the top tier stuff as well?
1: Yeah, I'd say so. In general, for sure. You know, they're just obviously it's in their company's interest to make the things as durable as possible. But there is, I think there is a point of diminishing returns where, you know, if you're moving from XT to XTR, then you're willing to sacrifice a little bit of durability just to have the the lowest weight, you know? So again, it goes back to what you were saying about what are your priorities as a mountain biker. If you're trying to build the lightest bike possible, then yeah, you're going to go out and buy the lightest, everything that you can.
0: What about drivetrain performance? Is there a big difference between the low end and the high end in a lot of the drivetrains on the market today?
1: Well, honestly, it's, it's not that big a difference. I think both SRAM and Shimano have put a lot of effort into making sure that, their drivetrains across all their levels of groups shift. Great. Will there be differences? Oh, for sure. You know, like, you know, you jump on a bike with NX on it. It's not going to, it's not going to be as precise. It's not going to have a, as light a lever feel. you know, the shifts maybe aren't going to be as accurate as the XX one group, but it's going to be rideable. You know, it's not going to be some horrible experience where you're going to question whether or not you should keep riding bikes. Um, <laughs> But, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, all drivetrains have improved over the years. You know, so if you take, you know, something like SLX, the current group, the new 11-speed SLX looks great, it works great, and it's probably as good or better than the previous generation XTR was. So we do see a lot of the, you know, the trickle-down technology go to the lower groups. I mean, that's, that's all of... SRAMs groups, essentially, you know, they started out with the one by 11 at the very top tier XX1. And then, you know, then it went to X01, then it went to X1 and on down the line to NX. So yeah, we we do see a lot of that trickle down, and we see a lot of benefit from it. And we see that all drivetrains shift pretty well these days.
2: So one thing that is difficult to sort of communicate at some point is the fact, you know, we're talking about SLX and XT and and some of these things. And I just put together a buyer's guide for budget fat bikes, and that went up to, uh, I think, fifteen hundred bucks. And it's on a budget fat bike. It's tough to even get, say, an eleven-speed drivetrain until you get to that fifteen hundred-dollar mark. You know, and for and we're talking about NX retailing for about three hundred bucks. And when you have people that are buying bikes for five or seven hundred dollars, you know, they're not ending up even with say like a ten-speed SLX. They might be running an Sierra group or something like that. So I think the, the the tough thing to try to communicate is, you know, we're talking about these drivetrains that are performing really well on what we consider a budget basement drivetrain like SLX. But if you're running something below SLX or even like a really old SLX, you can get some really good performance benefits by doing a drivetrain upgrade to some of these models that we're discussing so if you don't if you aren't up to this point already you can get a big benefit but if you're already say at a slx or gx and you're looking to go to an xx1 or something you know again these these returns diminish so the big performance boosts come from the really low stuff when you're going from really low to like say mid-range
1: yeah and um yeah kind of touching on what you mentioned earlier like the rear derailleur especially i think that is the dumbest area to put more money into your bike if you're looking to upgrade something because it is you know it, it is so vulnerable it's dangling off the back of your bike um you know i've been pretty lucky uh but i, I still have destroyed you know half dozen or so derailleurs over my mountain biking career but and you know you see a lot of brands do this they'll spec a xtr or higher level rear derailleur and then everything else on the drivetrain is is much lower tier and that's because like it's you know as sexy as it can be i guess it's like a sexy item you know ooh look at this xtr rear derailleur but i mean if it's paired with like a slx shifter you're not really getting the full potential of that rear derailleur anyway so it's just kind of a a useless upgrade i mean if you really if you if you've got the money and you're just really jonesing for an upgrade, upgrade your shifter, you know, and a nicer shifter is going to have a much better feel and you're going to, it's going to be much more noticeable than upgrading your rear derailleur, but keeping your same lower level shifter or, you know, or get a nicer cassette. You know, that's another way to you know improve your shifting performance. But yeah, as, as far as the, the rear derailleurs go, I think mid range is, is good for just about everybody.
0: We've touched on durability a little bit in this discussion already, but how does durability compare across the lower end drivetrains up to the higher end?
2: You know, we do see increases in durability as price goes up. Um, and, you know, just because your drivetrain weighs a lot doesn't mean it's necessarily going to be durable. Like there are some um, lower end components that are sort of heavyweight that don't necessarily. Um, produce the same durability that you would think they would for their weight. Some heavier derailleurs uh, can be still really fragile. So uh, again, it's, it comes back to that trifecta, the weight, the price, and the durability. And hopefully, you know, you can move up in price a little bit and get big gains in both durability and lowered weight. Yeah, in
0: general, my sort of experience is that the, the super top-end drivetrains are generally going to be less durable than the one right below them. So, you know, the super high end is is meant for racing. It's as light as possible. Um, and that's sort of the focus there and that's what makes it really expensive. But then if you want a really, really nice drivetrain, that's also durable, that maybe weighs just a smidge more, um, then, then go to that like second from the top level. Um, but that's that's not always the case, you know. It's You have to do your homework, so.
1: Yeah, and I will say one one more thing to add is as you get to nicer and nicer levels of drivetrain, they generally become more rebuildable as well. So you can find things like replacement cages and, you know, parts for the shifter or something like that, whereas the lower end stuff, it's like, well, it's so cheap it's almost not worth fixing. You just buy the whole new shifter or the whole new rear derailleur.
0: Oh Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, a lot of those pieces are like riveted together and right. stuff versus, yeah, having screws or things that you can use to take them apart. Okay. So let's move on to another hot topic in the drivetrain space. And that is electric drivetrains for mountain bikes. Is this going to be the next big thing? Do you guys think?
1: Hell yeah, man. Cause we're all going to be riding e bikes. So we might as well have e drivetrains, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes. I mean, we'll see. You know, it's, it's still very expensive. I think that's kind of like the main barrier right now. It's, um, but it's the same thing that happened with, you know, one by 11 drivetrains when it first came out. It was only available the XX1 tippy top tier level. So only, only very few people could afford it. And currently Shimano is really the only player in mountain bike that has a drivetrain that's actually available for sale. They have two groups. They have the XTR and they have the XT. And the XTR group, as I mentioned earlier, is over two grand, and the XT group is right around a thousand bucks. Microshift is working on a electronic drivetrain, and they say it'll retail for somewhere around six hundred bucks mm. when it comes out. But that's probably still at least another year or so out. So who knows? I mean, that could end up just being vaporware. But uh, you know, SRAM doesn't have anything on the mountain bike side yet, but they do have a wireless group for road or an electronic group. That's also wireless. I kind of gave away the, <laughs> the headline there. Dang it. But that's a really cool, that's a different thing about, uh, that really sets the SRAM drivetrain apart is the fact that it is wireless. Uh, so everything, which means everything has to have its own little battery pack, but, uh, instead of just having one common battery that the all the components share like they do on the Shimano's Di2 drivetrain. But I think, I mean, think about how easy setup would be. There's no wires to run. You know, you could you could build a frame without any, you know, you wouldn't need to run any holes in it, you know, for cable routing or anything. Um, it'd make for a really clean bike. Uh, and I think it would just be, I think that'd be pretty cool. So I'd put it on my bike if I could, if it was a little bit cheaper, I think.
0: Well, what are some of the main advantages? What's
1: driving this uh, march toward electronic drivetrains? If you've seen one of these things in action, they shift so fast and so precise. I mean, you can't—you just can't be that accurate with a mechanical system. And, you know the the derailleur is going to move an exact amount every single time you push that button. Whereas, I know you know all of us have been there where you're kind of fumbling for gears maybe it's the end of a long ride and you know or you're riding really hard and you're not thinking straight and you don't shift enough or you shift too much and you get two gears and you only want one or something like that like that doesn't happen with an electric drivetrain it's just it's right there it's yeah it's lightning fast so i think that's probably uh the shifting performance is just a lot better than a mechanical system
2: I do wonder though, sometimes for some people, like, despite the fact how good battery life is on the DI2, for me personally, I still have a hard time considering putting a battery and an electronic doohickey on my bicycle. I mean, I've, you know, had enough experience with DI2 to see how awesome it shifts. Um, but, you know, I think, I think analog is coming back in a lot of uh, different places. I think we're seeing some people. Maybe just me, (laughs) Um, but I think we're seeing some people sort of going back to analog in many areas of their life. For instance, um, I've gone back to analog um, for journaling, writing with a pen and paper and removing some of the electronics and uh, the complication from my life has made it easier and allowed me to go into a different headspace. And I just wonder how that's going to play out with electronic shifting. I'm not writing it off by any means. Uh, I think it'll just be interesting to observe and sort of see, um, some of the more mental and philosophical approach to like biking and going out in the woods and what that means to people. But, uh, one thing you can say is everybody's different. So I think it's going to be a bit different for everybody as time goes on.
0: Yeah. In my own personal experience, trying DI2, I, I wasn't super impressed with it. Or I, I guess for me, I didn't understand uh, sort of the benefits to it. Um, I've never been in a situation where I've had shifting problems due, due to being tired, maybe because I don't push myself hard enough. Uh, but honestly, yeah, it it wasn't anything that like really was like, I need to have this uh, for me. And then also I'm like you, Greg, it seems like for me anyway, you know, mountain biking is about doing things under my own effort and even, you know, having something shift for me, I mean, that's that's kind of a slippery slope. You know, once you start putting stuff on your bike to, like, do stuff that you used to do with your own body, then, yeah, you're getting close to an electric
1: bike, you know? Hey, I mean, but, you know, you could say, like, then we should go back to the days pre-derailleurs where you had to get off your bike and, you know, manually swap. No,
0: I'm saying it's work. it's work being done by a motor, right? So... I mean, and I'm saying it's, it's inconsequential, right? Like it's not a lot of work, but you know, well, for example, yeah, no. Anyway, you could, (laughs) this is a dumb example. I didn't have a good one,
1: but Uh, anyway, so
0: yeah, it's a servo. It's a motor doing something for you that you used to do yourself with your thumb.
1: Right. I mean, it's, it's definitely a first world problem of the first order, you know, so it's, it's, it's not. It is, it is faster. It is more accurate, but like, yeah, I mean, we've all been getting along just fine with mechanical drivetrains. And I don't think mechanical drivetrains are going to go anywhere at all. I mean, in the, in the, in the long run, I think they'll still be available even at the upper end of the spectrum because there are always going to be those people who want a mechanical drivetrain who are not interested in putting, adding any more electronics to their lives. And I, I totally get that. So yeah, I don't, I don't think. You're not going to see an electronic drivetrain just kill all mechanical drivetrains. You know, you're not going to be able to go to wherever you go to lo- your local bike shop and get a $500 entry level hardtail that has eight speed, you know, DI2 on it. That's just not a thing that's going to happen. So I think, you know, we, we will see it come in at more price points, and I'm sure we'll see SRAM get into the game at some point as well, but I just think it'll be another option.
0: Yes, and to each his own. I, I don't judge anybody who has one at all. It doesn't, you know, again, it just doesn't do it for me. All right. So what's the deal with oval chain rings? I know, um, that's a topic whenever an oval chain ring review comes up. A lot of people like to ask questions about it. Have either of you guys tried oval chain rings on your bikes?
1: I actually have not uh, tried an oval chain ring, but you have Jeff, right? You've tried a, a few of them.
0: I have. I don't know if it's a few, maybe just one, <laughs>
2: but I
1: tested it for a while. You've got us all beat, Jeff. It's it's all you.
0: Okay. Well, so some of the claimed benefits are uh, that it somehow increases your power on the bike. Uh, some companies are making that claim. And then um, there's also the claim that it decreases injury uh, for a lot of riders, or at least makes riding more comfortable for them. So on the first count, the increased power i 'm going to come out and just say that's not true, and the claims too are are of minor power increases anyway, you know a few percentage points, but in racing that can make a huge deal so if If this were something that everyone found to be true, then everyone would be racing with oval chain rings, and they're not so for me that one that one's bunk um, you know if you 're looking for more power, then train more or dope I mean, you can do that too <laughs> you but, <laughs> but you 're not going to get the power out of a uh, out of an oval chain ring. And then the other part, the decreased injury or, or increased comfort uh, for some people. I think that is true. I think some people, it does feel more comfortable. And so, you know, if you're someone who's got issues with, you know, the sort of standard pedal motion or you're recovering for an injury, then, you know, why not give it a try? Uh, see if, if you prefer that configuration. One thing I will say is that on a mountain bike in particular, I I think it's it's pretty ill suited, uh, to be honest. And that has to do with just the way that you put power down on a mountain bike trail. You know, a lot of times you're in really steep terrain or there are transitions from, you know, a rock to a root, you know, to trying to get across a stream crossing that require you to have certain pedal position and then to apply power immediately. And so when you have this oval chain ring, it can mess that up sometimes. So sometimes you're on the sort of low power end on the oval chain ring, depending where your pedal position is. And you'll find that, you know, that first push of energy that you put into the bike, like doesn't go anywhere. So I just found that really awkward for mountain biking in particular. Um, I do think if you're on the road where you're, you've got like a constant cadence and you know, you're able to You don't have to worry about pedal position. I think it is, it's a fine idea. But yeah, for mountain biking, I say don't, you don't need to do it.
1: So maybe we should, uh, describe a little bit about oval chain rings for people that aren't familiar. So what is the, what's the theory behind them? Like, why are they, why are they claiming that you get increased power?
0: That's a good question. I mean, I've never understood it. Honestly, I can't give you a good explanation because I don't think there is one. (laughs) Uh, You know, um, I mean, there is some stuff that they try to explain using physics and things like that, but it, to me, it just doesn't hold a lot of water, the theory behind it. And, you know, I mean, if you even just look at a lot of people will say like, Oh, BioPace, like that came out and it was a flop and BioPace, it was even like is 90 degrees different. So basically like the oval part was on a different part of the pedal stroke. So that just shows you like how little science there is behind this. If people can't even agree on like wh- where, the where the oval, oval needs to be, it doesn't make any sense. So
1: yeah. wasn't well, the idea like you're essentially getting kind of like two chain rings in one. So the idea is since it's it's an oval shape when you're in your power part of the stroke, it's like having a larger chain ring. So the theory is it'll make you go faster during that, you know, you'll get, you'll get more out of your power stroke. And then when you're not in your power stroke, it, it's essentially like switching to a slightly smaller chain ring. So when you're in your least efficient part of your pedal stroke, it's supposed to be easier. So I think that's kind of, you know, yeah, it's more a good or less, That's the idea behind it. Yeah. Whether or not it actually works in, in real life on the trail. It sounds like that's very debatable. And I've heard, you know, like you said, I've heard from a lot of people that have tried them, even people who have ended up liking them, that the kind of odd cadence effects that it has do take some getting used to.
0: Indeed. And it's not a big deal to try it too, especially (sighs) if you have a one by drivetrain right now. So, you know, don't take my advice as, (laughs) you know, the rule like you can go out and we put them in our deals email uh, occasionally even you can find them on amazon for like 20 25 bucks yeah they're
1: not any more expensive than than a, a regular chain ring and most of them are going to be narrow wide as well so if you're running a a one by you do still have that, that chain retention benefits, but yeah, there's no, no shortage of people out there making oval chain rings. So I guess obviously there's some riders that like them.
2: Yeah. I mean, uh, we do have some positive reviews of them on the site. I know Michael Paul specifically, uh, is a fan. So, you know, I think it's again, one of those personal things that like you said, you got to try it for yourself. Do you know if he's still running those? That is a great question. I think so. I think on one of his bikes he is, but uh, I'd have to look at some photos.
0: Yeah. Well, that's one thing that I found too, is I, I could not run them on different bikes. So for me anyway, it's like, as Aaron said, you got to get used to it. And so it doesn't really lend itself to having one on one bike and a different chain ring on a different bike. You know, if you're going to go oval, you probably need to go all in.
1: Once you go oval, you never go round. Exactly. Sorry, that was terrible.
0: Okay, so what are some other unconventional drivetrains we've tested? Uh, there's the internally geared drivetrain. Greg, you've tested a couple
2: of those, right? Yeah, there are a few options. Um, the two main options are roll-off and pinion. And so the roll-off is a rear hub mechanism. So it sits in the rear hub of your bike, and it's got a bunch of internal gears that connect and create different gear ratios, and you switch it with a grip shifter, uh, the problem with the main problem with the roll off is the rearward weight bias. Like your rear wheel is stuck to the ground, it weighs a ton. So, you know, if you like to get playful on the bike, this is a bad idea. Um, also, it has a lot of resistance in your drivetrain because there's a bunch of different gears that are constantly in contact. It's like a multiple. Here situation so you should check out a diagram of it it's pretty tough to explain verbally but once you look at a diagram you'll see it and then that provides a lot of resistance to the pedals so uh, it is easier to shift with uh, the grip shifter than the pinion drivetrain but i can't really ever approve of those except for maybe like a commuter bike on the mountain bike nah, that's it's pretty tough
1: Yeah, you should really, like Greg said, you should check out the cutaway of the roll-off. It is pretty impressive, all the stuff that's crammed into there. Yeah, I've ridden it a little bit on a mountain bike, not for any long period of time. But yeah, the it, it is heavy. I mean, you're essentially cramming, you know, you're cramming your cassette and your derailleur and all this other stuff from your drivetrain into your hub. So it weighs a lot. But yeah, like Greg mentioned, it's a great solution for... Maybe certain types of bikes or certain types of riding. Maybe if you're doing, you know, I don't know, bike packing or, you know, you're really remote riding or something like that, where you don't want to worry about ripping a derailleur off and you just want the lowest maintenance possible and you're willing to sacrifice maybe some efficiency or something like that, then it can be a good solution because basically the only maintenance that a roll off requires is you change the oil like once a year or something like that. So. Pretty simple to take care of, but it's also very expensive. I can't remember exactly what it costs, but I think the hub itself is like around 1500 bucks or more. And then you got to build it up to a wheel and then you've got to have a frame that can accept it. So there are kind of a lot of limitations and things to think about. You can't just, you can't just take your bike now and throw a roll off on it in, in most cases.
2: So the next one we're going to talk about is even harder to put on your bike. Basically, you cannot put this drivetrain on a bike unless it has been designed for it. Not basically. There's no basically. That's 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 the <laughs> yeah. extent of it. So Definitely. whereas a Roll-Off, sometimes you know, it depends on your rear spacing. Uh, that is a little bit more cross-compatible. The Pinion drivetrain, which is the next one we're going to talk about, it's essentially an internal uh, gearbox. So it's an in- a completely internal transmission that is At the bottom bracket of the bicycle. And uh, again, you'll have to look at pictures to get a visual of this. But we have a a couple articles up on the site about these things. And uh, so it's a gearbox at the bottom bracket, and the cranks run through it. And the benefits are that there's only one gear, one pair of gears, rather, in contact at any one point in time. So there's less resistance in the roll off. It's also a the best place you can have weight on the bicycle is at the bottom bracket, but the the frame literally needs to be designed and created for the pinion specifically. So there's no cross compatibility whatsoever. But I love the idea of a pinion because you've got the weight in the right spot. You've got a lot more. You can have more gear range than a standard drivetrain. in some situations. You can switch a lot of gears at once. But the problem that I found when I actually tested it is that you cannot shift under pressure to the drivetrain, which sounds like a minimal issue until you start pedaling. And basically, I mean, it's the same idea with uh, a manual transmission on a car or a motorcycle. Like you can't shift that under pressure, which is why there's a clutch mechanism to push the two gears apart and engage to other gears. So I'd love to see the pinion uh, create some sort of clutch mechanism to allow you to shift on the roll um, as you're going along. Because the way it's set up right now, I've only got one test ride on it. And some people say you get used to it, um, but I think you get used to going slow and stopping pedaling. So <laughs> it really, really, it needs a clutch. I mean, that's that's why manual transmissions on uh, vehicles have clutches. So that's, that's ultimately what it needs.
0: One of the other drivetrain options that's out there is the Gates Carbon Drive. And so this is a drivetrain that gets rid of the standard metal chain on a mountain bike and swaps it for a carbon belt
2: instead. Greg, what do you know about the Gates Carbon Drive? Yeah, I've actually tested the Gates uh, a few times over the years, both in a, in a single speed and in a geared setup. And I love the quietness of the Gates and the lack of maintenance. So, I mean, you literally, you don't need a lube your chain, like you need to do nothing. And these Belts are supposed to last for thousands and thousands of miles if they're tensioned correctly. There, there are, as with everything, there are downsides. So all these alternative drivetrains we're talking about are much more expensive than their common alternatives. That uh, applies to the gates. And basically you're stuck with a single speed setup with the gates, unless you use one of the other two alternatives. We just talked about the roll off or the pinion, because you can't run the gates through a derailleur system. So if you want gears and gates, Uh, and a belt, you need to use pinion or roll off. If you're single speed, you're going to have a harder time switching gear ratios because you can't adjust the length of your belt. So sometimes you can switch your gear ratio if you keep your belt length exactly the same. But if you're not keeping your belt length exactly the same, you need to buy a different belt. And they're not stupid expensive, but they're not cheap either. And the final downside is generally speaking, your Going to need to have a frame designed for gates in which there's a break in the chainstay to slide the belt through because you can't break the belt. The one exception is if you actually have an elevated chainstay, which we're seeing more and more of for uh, tire clearance issues. So, if you have an elevated chainstay, sometimes you can finagle your gates belt in there. And so, we're seeing, for instance, uh, some uh, trek stashes with. Gates, not ton, but you know you can get your belt in there without breaking the frame. So you might not need a frame designed specifically for it, but you just can't put it on any old frame out there.
1: Right? Yeah, and uh, yeah, the other thing you mentioned, yeah, it is it is hard to switch gear ratios, and it gets expensive because you have to. You know, there's a specific Gates chain ring and a Gates cog. You can't just use a you don't use a standard chain ring and a standard cog, and then yeah, if you break a belt out in the woods, you're screwed. You can't, you're not taping it back together. You know, (laughs) there's no chain link tool for a belt. So yeah, if you were to break a belt somewhere, unless you happen to be carrying one in your pack with you, you're, you're going to be walking out of the woods. And, um, I, I, one of my buddies, Christopher, he had a, uh, he had a spot brand single speed that had the, the Gates carbon drive on it. And it was definitely novel, but, um, you know, when he went to get a new bike, he he got one with a chain on it. So, uh, if that tells you anything, yeah, chain or the belt tension is is really crucial. Probably even more so with the gates than than with a, a regular chain. So that's another thing to keep in mind. Maybe the once you have it set up and it's set up correctly, like you're going to have really good durability. But if you kind of skip over any steps in that initial setup, you could be setting yourself up for failure.
0: Yes. So one final drivetrain oddity that I want to talk about is the all wheel drive mountain bike. So over the years, I know a lot of people have thought like, wow, wouldn't that be great if you could have an all wheel drive mountain bike and it's been done. People have tried this. So there are a couple of different ways this is accomplished. Christini, I believe used to, and maybe still does produce a bike that has an internal shaft that goes from the cranks. Uh, up through the down tube and then somehow connects itself to your front wheel. So when you're pedaling, you're driving both the front and the rear wheel. And the idea is that doing this gives you better traction, just like it might in a car. You know, all wheel drive cars uh, tend to have better traction in loose conditions uh, because you're always going to have weight on at least one of your wheels. So hopefully you can get traction on that. And then there's also, I tested a mountain bike that had. All-wheel drive, and this was accomplished through the use of a massive amount of bike chain. So it had <laughs> it had a chain that went up again beside the down tube, and then some more chain that went down the fork and Chains connected everywhere. Yeah, it was probably twenty-five, thirty feet of chain on this bike. <laughs> so it was really heavy, really scary looking too. It looked like you could just get everything caught in that chain <laughs> as you're going around. Skin suits only when you're riding that thing. Yes, but. All that work went into it. And at the end of the day, I found it to be just totally useless. You know, in theory, it makes sense that maybe all wheel drive would give you better traction. But the fact of the matter is the times when you need traction while you're pedaling, you know, on a mountain bike, that's when you're going uphill. And when you're going uphill, most of the weight on your bike is on your rear wheel anyway, because that's just geometry. So the bottom line is, I didn't find it to be any real advantage in climbing on flat and sort of downhill. It did feel, it felt like the bike had more momentum, if anything, uh, but didn't it didn't do a lot for traction. So, um, if you're thinking that you know you might want an all-wheel drive mountain bike, sorry to tell you, that's probably not worth pursuing. Excellent. Well, we've covered a lot of ground here in our discussion about drivetrains. But I'm sure there's still a lot of questions out there that people might have. So we'd love to hear your questions on our website. So you can post them on single tracks or ask questions on any of our articles that we publish. And we'd be happy to try to address them here in the podcast. We'd also love for you to review the podcast in iTunes or in the Android store, wherever you get your podcast episodes. And finally, that's all we have this week. Talk to you again next week. Peace.